You're listening to FundFlow, a podcast for emerging managers, offering insights into the journey of new and aspiring fund managers seeking to have access in a crowded market. Tune in as McGuire Woods partner and host, John Finger, is joined by guests ranging from first-time fund managers to proven emerging managers, experienced LPs poised to back emerging managers, and other key participants in the emerging manager ecosystem. Hear their real-world perspectives and gain actionable tips to help inform your strategy and position yourself for a successful fund closing. Welcome to FundFlow a McGuire Woods podcast for emerging managers. I'm John Finger, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Kate Beardsley, managing partner of Hannah Gray. Kate, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, John, for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. Our pleasure. Let's start and talk a little bit about your journey in investing and how it led you to begin Hannah Gray. Sure. So I think... Probably what most people, especially emerging managers, would say today is that they have an unconventional path to venture capital. Um, I certainly share that story. And I think it's for the betterment of the industry as well. I started my career as chief of staff to Martha Stewart, which was um, a really fun and exciting entry point into the business world. And um, she's an incredible entrepreneur herself. And so I really got to apprentice with her and help her start a lot of small business initiatives that ultimately, you know, would help grow the bottom line of a larger corporation. And then I moved over to um, being chief of staff to Ken Lear, the founder of the Huffington Post early on in the Huffington Post journey. So I think I was employee number 20 or thereabouts. And um, that was just an incredible experience of really um, stepping into the foray of the New York tech scene, which was very much emerging. This was um, early 2008, I want to say. So right around the inauguration, um, the Huffington Post was kind of becoming on the map politically at that time. And so New York wasn't a New York tech scene yet. Uh, Boston was certainly the East Coast dominant market. And then um, that role, Ken was involved in a lot of amazing, exciting startups and then started helping with his angel investing for his family office. And then that turned into a formal process where we raised our first venture fund. Back then it was called Lyra Media Ventures in January, 2010. And now it's called Lyra Hippo and is uh, one of the most active funds in New York City for seed stage investing. And it's just become an incredible franchise. And so I feel really honored to have been a part of that. I was there for about five years. We did three funds and close to 200 investments. So we were running at a very um, high clip, but also running with the New York technology scene, um, I would say, taking shape. And so we were right at the, we kind of timed it better. And that's to Ken's credit. You know, he's just a sage and and knew that it was the perfect time. Um, and then he moved over to Galvanized Ventures, which is headquartered in uh, Denver, Colorado, which also brought me out to Colorado in 2015, which is where I am now. Galvanized, um, at its peak, was a 400-person uh, education company that looked like WeWork meets General Assembly and with a small venture fund. And um, I had the privilege of managing that venture fund. And um, Galvanized Inc. sold to K-12, um, an online education company in 2019, but the venture fund still exists. It's now renamed Upslope Ventures and um, 
me and my partners at Galvanize still manage that fund. But around that time is when I met Jessica in 2014, when I moved over to Galvanize and really just started collaborating with her around what she was seeing in New York. I hadn't moved yet to Denver, but we found a friendship really quickly. We worked the same way. Um, We had a similar intensity and just a deep curiosity for what we were seeing. And um, she was managing a corporate CVC at the time in New York. And so there was, um, I would say, some restrictions based on what the corporate was focused on investing at, but I was always a generalist. And so that is my path. And that's how Jessica and I teamed up and then um, formed Canagray last year in 2021 in March. So really thrilled to finally be at this juncture with her. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. I think I've mentioned to you before, but being memorable is always important in whatever we're collectively doing. I absolutely love your story about how you named your firm. And to this day, it's in my mind. And I always talk to people about it with a lot of emerging managers who are coming up with how do they name their firm. So would would you share that with, with our audience here today? Yes, of course. And thank you for the kind words and compliment. So our firm is named Hannah Gray after our daughters. Uh, Jessica has a, her oldest is Rhea Hannah, and my oldest is Gunnison Gray. So we use their middle names. And I think that it was somewhat natural in terms of thinking about it. You know, Jess candidly came up with it one day. We were on a conversation and we were like, we'll name it Gray Hannah or Hannah Gray. And immediately we knew that it was an emotional connection, which is really, as you just said, one of the keys to being memorable and and there's a story there and it has meaning for us. And I think deeply, you know, it keeps us centered on what's important, you know, and and how we actually tie our importance to venture capital is, you know, kind of who are we doing this for? And and we always say that it's of course for our daughters to make them proud first and foremost, um, <laughs> but also the next generation. You know, that's really how we think about the long-term holds of venture capital and and who we're looking to support here. But yes, it's also was easily trademarked, if I'm honest. You know, this was one of the factors. It after having named, you know, multiple venture funds and renaming Galvanize from Upslope, going through the trademark process is is not always easy. And there's a lot of power words now in the market, which are great and very inspirational, but um hard to trademark from, from a financial perspective. And so we were looking at something that was just at the advice of our trademark lawyer, go go way outside the field, um, which I think helps to be memorable. The the irony is now Jessica and I both have two other daughters. Um, she has a Dahlia and I have an Olive. So we joke that we need to name something after the other ones as well. That's fantastic. And quick sidebar, one of my best friends growing up, his daughter name was Dahlia as well. So I know that's oh, a pretty... Cool. Unique, unique name, but yeah, she has a great story about that too. Yeah, oh, I look forward. I look forward to. I'll, I'll definitely ask her about that. So, what, what were some of the indicators, both internally for you, Kate, and then also what you saw in the broader private equity market that you were ready to raise your own fund? Yeah. Um, gosh, timing is everything, you know, it's so easy in hindsight to look back, whether it's on a, you know, investment a firm has made and say that was the right timing, that was the wrong timing. It's so hard to qualify that in the moment because you just don't know, A, how long it's going to take you at that particular vintage to raise that fund. And also, 
is this the is this going to be well received based on what else is going on in the market and what other people are saying and doing? So it's it's really always your best guess. There's certain things you can kind of look towards, and I think you get one gets better at it as your franchise grows and you have a better sense of your LP's appetite and and market timing and expansion and all of that. Um, being a first time fund, which even though Jessica and I are not new to venture capital, we obviously were going out with a new brand, and that's just a harder sell. We honestly knew it was going to be difficult. We had um, Jessica was officially at her corporate CVC until the fall of 2020. And that was an also a large factor of we really wanted to make sure more so than market timing that we had alignment with our previous partners and our previous firms and that we had support from them, um, you know, from referencing perspective and and just you know, sharing our goals. And I think that that's crucial because oftentimes people just kind of go out and say, I'm doing this now. But that was a bigger factor for us in making sure that we took the time to get that alignment more so than saying, we're going to try to time the market and go out. But that was, I think, our, our most leading factor. So Hannah Gray, still relatively new to the landscape, being founded in, in 21, and I know recently closed on your fund. How was that experience impacted by coming onto the scene as Hannah Gray right at the height of COVID? Yes. Um, man, it was a, it was a challenging time. I mean, I think we started thinking about it March of 2020 and, and kind of putting pen to paper of what our deck was going to look like and what our story was going to be. And I kind of go back to that with such awe because the market was collapsing every hour. You know, it was such a, insane time. And I've been in venture for close to 15 years and I've really never seen anything like it of just this like descent, you know, to the point where no one could get on the phone. You know, everyone was panicked about their own personal experiences. It was really hard to focus on work at that time. And then of course, traditional investors, fund of funds were worried about their current portfolio. There was just no way to engage um, on a new opportunity. It just felt like the last thing anyone anyone wanted to do at that point. So we really went on a listening tour, um, you know, talking to, uh, I would say, OGs in the space who had established firms, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And what what were their learnings? Because they had seen a couple of market cycles. And so maybe there was advice to be uh, garnered in those experiences. And so that for us became what we kind of spent our time doing and trying to really understand how we would, from that historical, you know, data we could get how could we position our fund and when was the right time to kind of go out and and talk about our brand and how we were going to be differentiated and things were moving in real time like i just again can't underscore enough how bizarre it was to try to form something to talk about as you know a 10 year strategy and we also had black lives matter which was a huge uh, just uprising and just so many other kind of real time effects that started to change the discourse um, on a global scale, but also, you know, very much on a funding scale of how is this going to be incorporated in our story? And, you know, what are we going to take from these learnings that we were seeing in real time in the market? So that was just an unprecedented time to, and I think we learned that we had to be quick on our feet and just have an opinion and and kind of dive in head first as, as quickly as possible. Sure. And it, it's interesting living living through the COVID time, right? Those challenges, to your point, were 
were so unprecedented. I mean, we we've certainly seen and obviously are seeing market moves that seem somewhat normal now, right? When you're not focused yeah. on, you know, can I go outside or to the store and what do I have to do? You know, having that hopefully in the rear view makes some of these mm-hmm. challenges, I think, a little bit easier to navigate. But recognizing all private equity and private credit, venture capital, all funds are different. How are you intentional about building the right credentials that would eventually lead to a successful close of Hannah Gray? Yeah, this is um, always the million dollar question, right? Is is what what can we do, present, strategize around to make sure that we're innovative and differentiated in the market? Um, you know, and so for us, we really kind of looked again. I feel like looked back at what felt natural to us and our and what had we learned in our tenure, and what do we feel like the market was moving towards? Right. I mean, this is actually our job as um, first check, early stage pre-seed seed investors is where's the pipe going, you know, try to understand where the market moves. And so we think about that and, and really dissected a lot of other venture firms and, you know, how did they get in market? What was the story they told? Because so much of this is actually breaking it down into digestible stories and pieces that can be understood. Um, certainly it's also about your track record, which, you know, hopefully everyone can get, you know, aim for attribution as much as possible. But it became, what are you going to do with that? You can't really kind of go back and do the same thing. How are you going to evolve and learn from your track and then implement it in a new in a new fashion? So I think we spent a lot of time breaking down the story because I can't underscore enough. We did not meet any LPs in person. You know, this was, again, another sort of generational shift. We had to do this via Zoom when people were trying to figure out how to log on to have Zooms as the new meeting method. And then most LPs, also, when we started socializing the concept, didn't know how to do diligence yet via remote. You know, it was very much like, well, we haven't, as we were asking those questions, like no one had arrived at a new relationship that was all remote diligence versus in-person on site. Um, so we felt like we really had to break down the story and break down the elements of what they felt like they could have been getting in an in-person and really repackage it for a virtual first environment. And that that goes down to every little single cell, if you think about it. It's just a big exercise in reframing. So I can't stress enough how much we kind of unbundled the process and then rebundled it to a more digestible experience because you're when you're on with an LP, you probably have 20 minutes of focused time to pitch and get their questions and leave a good impression. And so that's really what we were striving for is sort of that repackage and that experience. Um, so we broke down a lot of our capabilities and and tried to reframe them in a very clean way. So let's maybe spend a little bit of time talking more about that, because, of course, the the true LP interactions and and framing and construction is always critical. Mm-hmm. And as as we've touched on doing that through COVID is truly remarkable. But for Hannah Gray, what were some of the most important considerations for you when selecting LPs to pursue a real partnership with? Right. I think this is the work. So much of the work in fundraising, or I would say also just building a venture firm is done long before you talk to an LP. I kind of joke that 
I mean, it's not really a joke, actually. It's these are marriages, right? This is a marriage with my partner. This is a marriage with our LPs. Like, you know, it's you have to think in those terms. And oftentimes the marriage functions much earlier before you actually get to the wedding. And you have to do a ton of research. Um, I would I would encourage anyone to do a ton of research. I mean, so much of this is qualifying the people that are you think may be a fit for your fund and and doing all that back channeling exercise and research on are they actually going to understand my product, like it? Is this even a fit for their strategy? And the more that you can understand that before you talk to them, the better the conversation is going to be because through that research, you could say, you know what, there's no way this group's going to say yes because of X, Y, and Z. And, you know, maybe it's a financial thing, maybe it's a strategy thing. But the point is, is if you go in knowing that the only thing, the asset you have before you have a fund is time. And so if you can optimize your time to understand who you're actually talking to, I think that's, that's just an incredible asset that's available to anyone. You just have to be smart about it. And so we spend a ton of time really qualifying and very much like a sales process, you know, and think about it, something we encourage our companies to do in sort of their software sales is exactly that is qualifying the lead, making sure that no more than three days go by before you're kind of following up dutifully and with real questions, take copious notes. I mean, there was just a whole host of, I would say, things and sort of small tricks that Jessica and I learned while we were having these discussions to really qualify someone via Zoom and then also back channel with our peers and our network to understand what we heard and what we discussed. Is that really what we're they're also, you know, doing in the market? Or is there alternative data that we can also find so our follow-ups can be more qualified? I just think it's again really breaking everything down into the small minutiae of even just the note taking can be done differently. I mean, our CRM for our LPs is thousands of names and plenty of those names we may never have talked to, but we know what they're about and we know that they're probably not a fit for us and we didn't even waste their time and our time. So it's just so much of it is just going and finding that data and understanding and doing the reading. I would say that ser- that served us really well. That's great. I, I think at some point, maybe there'll be a company that comes along and uh, dedicates itself to somehow aggregating all of that data. And then, oh, and then there uh, are, there are, <laughs> but you can, I would say like the data is so helpful, but it doesn't replace the real relationship that you're trying to foster. So that's the other thing too, is who am I talking to? What are they personally interested in? And like, again, how do I kind of build a relationship via Zoom um, as a first step. And and again, as you said earlier, be memorable. Sure. Did you use a placement agent in your fundraise? We did not. Um, and I would probably say this, I don't want to say a blanket statement, but I don't, I've actually never used a placement agent in any of my funds that I've worked for. I think that's because I've always been at new, I have a weird, weird skill set in that I've actually started three funds from the ground up, which most for most VCs probably have never done. And placement agents, I think, are wonderful for when the firm is established and looking for new LPs and has a track record and can really, they they can package it up in a different way and know how to sell it. Emerging managers, I think, will be harder for placement agents just because there's just very little established track and, and ultimately you kind of need to be raising north of $100 million for that engagement to really, I think, 
be ideal for both parties. Makes sense. So you clearly had some great success bringing on LPs, but throughout the journey, what were the most common reasons you heard from LPs that were reluctant or hesitant Mm -hmm. to invest in a first-time fund? Oh my gosh, the list is so lengthy and for good reason, <laughs> like, right? I mean, I if I was in the other seat, I'd have the same answer, so it's not a criticism. And I think uh, oftentimes it's just, it, they don't know what they're buying, you know? And that's that's really difficult to, you're selling a story, you're selling the future. And even if you do have an established track, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be what they're going to get. And you know, there's a natural hesitation there. So, I mean, the list is lengthy because again, when we started these conversations, it was in a COVID, in in a COVID environment, not even really post-COVID, it was still happening real time. So the conversation was, like I said before, we don't really know how to do diligence remotely. We haven't figured that out yet as a team. Uh, We actually don't even have an emerging manager bucket. We've never done emerging managers. We don't know how, you know, it's our, our portfolio construction isn't there yet. That was very much a 2022 conversation. Happy to start the clock with you all, but we we like to have years of relationship, you know, years of getting to know you, which is almost always the common common comment. And then there's also, you know, the very real concern because Jess and I are partners. So I knew that I didn't want to do a fund by myself. I've I know how hard it is from having uh, started two other firms from the ground up. I think it really can thrive under a partnership. And that was my preference. And so was Jessica's. But of course, there's a criticism. of How do we know you're going to stay together? What is your partnership going to look like? We want to see that in action. You know, and then there's more granular things, right? Like we want to be focusing on something different than what you all are offering as a generalist fund. Um, They wanted more specificity in terms of deal flow, you know, certain, there's a lot of category specific funds that emerge at the same time, which I think is hugely advantageous and important to the industry, but that could just be the preference and diversification they're looking for as LPs. Also, our, our fund is too small, right? We were, uh, you know, aiming for a $50 million fund and thrilled to say we arrived at that, but some of these investors are really looking to put much more money to work and and it didn't make sense for the checks and the portfolio construction that they had. The list goes on. There's always a reason, but I think you have to listen to the no and understand the why and frame it. You know, And again, what I was talking about is really qualifying those leads. And you can qualify that by saying, is there a chance in future? Is there really never going to be a relationship here? There was also... Uh, often the comment, love to do a deal with you first and then make an investment, which there's a number of schools of thoughts on that comment, but um, I think it ends up being a really hard thing to make happen. And then you have to kind of have the perfect storm to achieve that if if that's a goal that an LP has for a relationship in order to transact. Thinking back on your experience throughout this process, were there LPs that initially you or Jess felt like, yeah, this just wasn't the right fit or we don't think they're going to get there again, without giving out specific names, of course, but you know, that, that ultimately you were able to, to bring in. And if so, what were some of the things that you think helped you address their concerns or what you perceived as, you know, potentially harder marriage to make happen? Yeah, that's a great question. Cause I think this one 
speaks to the longevity of the relationship. I would say if you're aiming for a long-term relationship, you know, I think there's that sensitivity, right? You know, one of the rookie mistakes I think is assuming that you're going to convert someone on a very quick conversation and that they're going to say yes at the end of it. If it happens, glorious, but don't aim for it. I think in terms of converting someone, ultimately, I would say if someone in their mind is is just like, this is no a no, not a fit, it's very, very hard to kind of convince them of something else otherwise. And we didn't really spend a ton of time trying to go up against what could be perceived as a brick wall. But I do think, as you're talking about, is was there a reframing that could have happened or understanding? I think some were a very slow roll, right? Maybe there was a conversation early on that, like I had said before, they just didn't have an emerging manager bucket. They really weren't sure how to do remote first diligence. And how could we, you know, was it the process of also time and we had enough time where we could also wait it out? I think, again, a lot of it goes back to being very specific about the data. We, Jess and I joke that we had a deck for every question an LP could have. And we probably had the most organized data room you'd ever seen and very lengthy for a pre-seed seed emerging manager. But we we put ourselves in the shoes of an LP and said, how can we help them and their investment committee and their diligence team get through that process? And it should all be there in the data room. You know, we should be able to kind of continually point them. And so I think we did we were pretty maniacal about our follow-ups and just making sure that we use some of our milestones as touch points to share those constantly with anyone we were in conversation with. And we did that pretty frequently. And some people would just say, thanks so much. And some would never respond, you know? And so it was really, I think to our credit is if we got someone to care enough to put us in a conversation with the rest of their IC or took time to actually read anything in our data room, that all of a sudden they they started to, I would say, just come along the journey with us and and got a little more excited. And so we were, what's this phrase? It's just be ready. You know, we were kind of at this ready state on our toes the entire time um, and kind of looking for any of those indications. And probably one of the largest issues about fundraising is that it's overwhelming. You spend so much time trying to do all the things so that you can't be ready. And and we spend an exorbitant amount of time just in that ready state. That's great commentary. With emerging manager programs on the rise at, at different LPs, what do you foresee for the future of the landscape as it relates to LPs' willingness to invest with emerging managers? I'm really glad to see emerging manager programs on the rise. I think I feel like in my experience, I was fortunate enough to apprentice, um, and I still think of myself as apprenticing and and really kind of drawing in those mentors where I can find them. But um, the programs are formalizing that and versus the ad hoc experience that I got. You know, I would have loved to have taken you know, some kind of programming when I was, um, you know, 14 years ago of just kind of how this all works. I kind of had to feel, feel my way through the dark through when the experience would come up. And that I think just gives a more, uh, more continuity to the whole, you know, start and finish of a fund. And I have to say, we, Jessica and I were in the first cohort of Cool Water, which is an emerging manager program. And 
I think of it as like YC for emerging managers. Uh, Wintermead has just done such an amazing job leveraging his network in this education, give first, very tech stars like format of just coming with wonderful, um, I would say, experts in the industry, everyone from service providers to fund managers to fund of funds and endowments explaining how they do their job. And, and it's very uh, curriculum based. So it does have this continuity of, you know, kind of on ramping you and up to more complex ideas around being a fund manager. And there's just no discounting an incredible cohort that comes with those programs because there's just something in this process. It's very hard. You get a ton of no's and the ability to kind of turn to your peers and be like, well, how are you doing this differently? Or how can we kind of level each other up and or support each other through this process? It's just no one really understand it, understands it like um, someone else going through it at the same time. So I think in terms of how LPs and their willingness to invest in emerging managers. I think this conversation of emerging managers in the last two and a half years has actually earned the right, you know, to have a small sliver in a portfolio of an LP base, which I think is just not going away. There's just so many people coming into it. And I think LPs are very aware now that there's an opportunity and they can carve out a small area of their portfolio construction to essentially test and have a finger on the pulse of what's happening at this level. And obviously if it's something that makes through and I'm sure the numbers are very slim, you know, into their regular portfolio, great. But I think it's just, it's that willingness to try and have a relationship and learn and experiment that I think has absolutely changed in the last two years. You know, you mentioned this idea about really leveraging community. And I, I think and I, I know there are some great programs out there and I've, I've heard wonderful things throughout the community. Um, and it's frankly one of the reasons that we launched our emerging manager ta- chapters around the country, which is essentially YPO for emerging managers. But it's about just having you have the ability to learn and share from people to your point, doing the exact same thing that you did or you want to do or you plan to do. And I think having that ability to really gain from that experience on a, on a regular basis and frankly, a more informal basis and sometimes less threatening is huge. So I definitely have heard the same from our community of emerging managers. I want to take some time particularly because how remarkable um, your story with Jess truly is within private equity. You know, we continue to see reports that diverse funds are systematically underallocated by institutional investors. What challenges did you face and both of you face being a woman in the field being co-founders of a new fund, both of you women, how did you overcome those? The numbers are truly abysmal, um, if I'm honest. I, if I'm candid, I never really looked at them. I mean, it's always been hard. And I've, and I've honestly never thought of it in a gender lens. Um, I've always been a part of really supportive teams. Sure, I, I might have been the only woman for a while or, or maybe the whole time. But that didn't... I didn't ever see that as as the as the lens I was sort of looking out through or the or the um, platform I had. I do have to say that my partner Jessica is a force, and she created with Sutan Dong um, Women in VC, which is the largest global community for female investors. 
And as you were just talking about community, like it's essential, especially now with a remote first environment, you know, your network is global and the ability to kind of interact with anyone who is experiencing the same thing or can help you is, is global. So from that perspective, Jessica founded um, that uh, organization in 2015. So think about it on the heels of kind of the Me Too, but also just aggregating a lot of women who are having shared experiences and, and leveling each other up and being supportive, as you were just talking about, I think has also been hugely essential. In terms of us and our experience, I don't think it was really a thing we we looked at. We were generalist fund investing in any type of human being across the country. And candidly, our LP base wasn't looking for, it's not diversity dollars, you know, um, they were looking for returns. And, and thankfully, you know, we had a great track and demonstration of that and, you know, plan to continue it. I think fundraising is always hard. It's 99 problems, no matter when you're going out or who you are, if I'm honest. Um, it was never a walk in the park at my previous funds that were all guys who had, you know, exceptional track and history too. I think it's the job of whomever is building the firm to figure out how you're differentiated, to figure out how you can be memorable, to figure out how you can stand out um, for better or for worse. And sure, there's just going to be more challenges, but I don't know, Jess and I just learned, like I said before, we were just constantly in a state of ready. And that is the thing that actually pushed us, I think, above other emerging managers, no matter whose background we were sort of being um, compared to. And, and that I feel like is what was also very memorable. It's just that we were, we were tenacious and, you know, there was a demonstration of our work ethic and, you know, regardless of who you are, what your background is, anyone can be that. So, and I think that that's always well-received. I mean, I was a college athlete and I feel like a lot of the things I learned in this fundraising process, I learned early on in sports and it's very, um, very comparable. So I hope it gets better. I do think there's a lot of initiatives that are now trying to change that and are, are allowing emerging managers and you know diverse managers more access. There's tons of improvements that can be made, but you know the proof is in the pudding and the work that you do and the numbers. You know this is this is for capital returns. Um, so that's really what I focus my true north on um, at the end of the day. You know I've certainly seen in the past few years more dedicated pockets, um, particularly within fund-to-fund strategies that are committed to women and other diverse managers. Did you see that evolution or progress in your fundraise? And what else, if anything, were some takeaways you saw with changes in the past couple years around diverse managers? Yeah, I, I think there's an absolute shift in the conversation. There are more demonstrations. I feel like in the last year, we've had some wonderful headlines of brilliant women closing funds. Katie Hahn, um, you know, it's just like a killer milestone. And I think it's headlines like that. And then we'll continue to be that will help change the conversation and have opportunity. Of course, there's other, as you were saying, pockets on fund of funds and groups that are focused on diversity, um, which are amazing. I think we were probably a little early in that process and the funds were being raised while we were raising our funds. So it was maybe a timing issue for a lot of them. Um, but I'm so glad that, you know, there's an appetite from LPs 
to form vehicles um, to be able to do this. Candidly, I wish it was just part of the regular vehicle um, and not an exceptional vehicle. But I do think that, you know, that's essentially those those other vehicles are already established and and maybe there's there's opportunity to evolve those together um, in future. But I just I hope it doesn't go away and I hope it just kind of emerges into a percentage of parity. And, you know, we again just focus on the capital returns and performance, you know, because arguably fundraising is the huge qualifier. Um, and, you know, we're trying to make it more equitable to be able to have a shot at that. But then over time, it'll definitely be performance that we're all judged against. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge supporter of any new initiative that's looking at new emerging managers and diverse managers to get in business. Sure. Any specific things, whether um, directed at the advancement of diverse managers or just more broadly within the emerging manager ecosystem, anything you would like to see change that changed that you think could have an impact on either the whole ecosystem of emerging managers or, or the diverse manager ecosystem? Yeah, my partner Jessica wrote a, and Sutan Dong wrote a wonderful white paper on this, um, I want to say about a year and a half ago, and they have a whole financial plan on how to make it happen. So I feel like if anyone's listening, um, reach out to Jessica and Sutan Dong, because it's actually not a lot of capital. There's just so few, if we just take the numbers of women for a, a second, because that's the research that Jessica and Sutan uh, did, there's just so few women starting funds. It's not a lot. Um, but to be able to essentially give them each an anchor check of say one to $2 million is absolutely doable in a way where essentially we're creating a new vintage of female fund managers. And so you can take the same data points of diverse managers. You know, it's essentially the hardest period is really that first close of how do you find someone within your network to help anchor you? And there's a lot of corporate strategics that kind of stepped into that role in the last year and a half, two years, which is just wonderful. Um, we didn't have an anchor for our fund. And, you know, in some cases it may have been better, maybe not. But I think if I'm looking at one small thing, and, and I know it's millions of dollars we're talking about, but essentially if there was a group that wanted to underwrite that process and focused on the anchor check, that would be life-changing, I think, for so many fund managers that are really just trying to get to a first close to demonstrate and then can close more money. It's very actionable. And like I said, Justin Sutan have laid it out in a whole white paper. So if anyone's interested, we have a plan. Outstanding. Well, we'll, we'll make sure to get that available to the community as well. Again, looking back, recognizing all the complexities and challenges in raising a first-time fund, what were some of the most teachable moments you and Jess encountered along the journey? Gosh, go back to the things I said before, though, like really qualifying your leads, understanding who you're talking to, understanding their background. I mean, we say the same thing in venture capital, right, when we're talking to entrepreneurs as those are just better conversations when we feel as though we're starting from a baseline and it's, we can certainly go through introductions. That's not what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about, you know, asking those specific questions that 
get a deeper conversation rolling because you've done the work and the research and you know what that person said on Twitter or read their latest blog posts. There's just so much content and data out there. And then also that back-channeling conversation, right? I mean, there's a ton of off-book referencing that happens in the LP world. And, and I say teachable moment here. You know, the minute you launch your firm, your it's not so much your deck is circulated, but your firm name and your in your um just presence in the market is being circulated amongst fund to funds and family offices. And they're talking to each other just like you're talking to your peers and saying, Hey, I spoke to Kate and Jess at Hannah Gray. Have you talked to them? What do you think? And it's just that sort of secondhand conversation that you hope is deeply positive. And you have no idea, but those interactions that you have with maybe um, LPs that are not a fit for your fund, but just as you said in the beginning, John, how can you be memorable? So even if they're not going to put money into your fund because it's an endowment, could you leave a positive impression so that in those secondhand conversations, you know, your firm name is brought up as who have you talked to lately that you think is really impressive or who would you stay away from? You know, you want to be thought of in that light and you can't control those conversations, but you certainly can tee up as much as you can to have that all be very positive and rolling in your favor because there's a ton of off book referencing that happens in the industry. And I think that goes such a long way. And the more you can kind of demonstrate your reach in those areas, the better. That was something I didn't understand enough. And then once we were kind of closing up our fund, I realized how it all worked um, on the back end. So yeah, go in eyes wide open. You've really provided a ton of insights here, Kate. I, I think the last question I would have for you is, in hindsight, mm-hmm. of all of the advice that that you may have received, that you may have formulated throughout your process, what would be the one piece of advice you would give to any emerging manager who wants to start their own fund? Absolutely find mentors, you know, people who are willing to teach you their trade. And I'm not talking, you know, don't reach out to me. I don't feel like I've been doing this long enough. I'm still apprenticing, but I mean, you know, people who are sort of retiring and have seen it all. And in really venture capital, I think is a layered series of experiences, both on the fundraising side, but also the deal side. I've had the privilege of being involved in close to 300 transactions at the early stage. And that helps like dip into the perspective of what I'm going to continue to see. And so find someone who's had just exposure to hundreds of thousands of opportunities, you know, in their lifetime and, you know, see if they'll be willing to just have a conversation with you and be very specific on what you're looking for. But it's that type of experience that hopefully you can find and transfer to your experience. I mean, that would be the thing I would have done sooner. That's gold if you can get it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much to our guest, Kate Beardsley, for coming on the podcast today. We'll certainly be keeping an eye on all the success that I'm sure you and Jess will see in the future with Hannah Gray. And thanks to our listeners for tuning into this episode of FunFlow. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful to be here. And your questions were awesome. They were some of the best I've heard around fundraising. So thank you. Well, thank you, Kate. 
thank you for joining us on this episode of FundFlow. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host John Finger at jfinger at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action. 